0: Hello again, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the arts and Christian faith. My name is Josh Gaston, and I'm joined today with Rich Chrisman and Zach Kaczynski. Rich recently put out a new blog post, and his title is, The Importance of Age Diversity, Reaching Out to the True Silent Majority. But, um, before we dive into that blog post, which we will discuss at length, I want to hand it off to Rich, and then we'll go around the room, Um, just to talk about what we've been into lately, what we've been reading, seeing, or listening to. Rich, go for it.
1: Hey, hello, everybody. Um, I wanted to bring one thing to everyone's attention. Today, on February 19th, um, is an important day. It is the day that the children's TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, would have turned 50. And this is 15 years after uh, Fred Rogers' death, also coinciding around this time. so. There's been a lot of media that's been coming out, uh, especially where I live here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Mr. Rogers is from and Mr. Rogers' neighborhood took place. I mean, when we weren't in the land of make-believe. There's been a lot of media being posted by local sources and places outside of that. And I just think it's a great – I think Fred Rogers was a fantastic, an excellent artist and an excellent Christian. And I think it's just important for us as – Uh, people who are consumers of excellent art and Christians. And we want to talk about the intersection of those things to look at that for right now. So the local NPR station in Pittsburgh posted this today. They said, Fred Rogers used his talents as a Presbyterian minister, a songwriter and an educator to create a children's show that he truly believed would benefit all more than 15 years after his death. We're still learning and benefiting from his gentle words, kindness, and helpful teachings. So that caught my attention right away because it sounds rather Christ-like. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Uh, And I started to thumb through the records that uh, WQED Pittsburgh has about Fred Rogers and his TV show and what he did for the community and whatnot. And I think that I came across a story that I think for us as Christians and as artists is just beyond inspiring. So, there's a story that was told about uh, an actor who is in a number of episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He is an African American man. And he played the police officer in the show. And he talked about, he tells a story, and you can listen to this either on the uh, Story corpse website, storycorps.com, or you can listen to it on WQED Pittsburgh. But anyway, he tells a story about how when he was asked by Fred Rogers to play a police officer in the show, and this is in the late 1960s, he absolutely didn't want to do it because of his negative perception of police. Where he said, he says that he grew up in a neighborhood where police were people that would sick dogs on his family members and hit them with fire hoses. And he said that I didn't want to represent this person on TV. But Fred Rogers coaxed him into doing it and he decided to come on anyway. And he said he was still feeling pretty sour about being on this very white television show and playing a police officer as a black man in America in the sixties. And uh, he said that was until he participated in an episode where Mr. Rogers is sitting on the edge of a kiddie pool with his feet in the water. When the police officer walks by And he said he walked by as the cop and Mr. Rogers invites him into the yard and asks him if he wants to, you know, cool himself off by putting his feet in the kiddie pool. And he didn't know how this episode was going to go. And while they were, you know, rehearsing this, um, Mr. Rogers invited him to sit on the side of the pool with him and join him with his feet in the pool. And the actor was really struck by Um, this, because in this time, this is in the era when, um, pools, public pools were segregated by skin color. And so he was firstly really moved by the fact that Mr. Rogers, who was both, uh, who was, you know, seemingly above him in every way, like he's the, you know, the head of the show, he's a white American, he is very wealthy, you know, all this, uh, Rogers could have had every reason to not share the pool. Uh, with him. And so he was moved by that. And then he said that he, while he was sitting in the pool, he began to think about this man, Fred Rogers in a different way. Uh, And he said that in the end of that scene, when he is done sharing the water and he removes his feet um, in the episode of the show, Mr. Rogers, then towel dries uh, the police officer's feet. And the police officer said that he all of a sudden felt himself struck with this very biblical experience where this man who's his boss he's the writer of the show he's the in in this environment it would be very normal for him to not want to interact with this man of another race and another background and instead not only did he share the water with him but he knelt down and washed his feet at the end uh which is something that It's a very biblical image and a very humbling thing. And I just think that that's just an awesome – just wanted to share that story with you guys. It's been been years since we've watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But I think that if that's something that – if you like nostalgia and you like the work of excellent Christians, uh, you can look Mr. Rogers up again. I think he's someone that we can all um, aspire to emulate in some ways as he aspired to emulate Christ. So – just wanted to share that with you guys on this February 19th, 2018. Thanks, Rich.
0: There's also, there's a, you know, talking about Mr. Rogers, there's a really moving piece where he was presenting, um, you know, basically arguing for the value of art to the community and to society. Um, I don't know exactly the context, but it was a legal framework. So he's maybe trying to get funding or make sure that funding didn't get cut um, for the um, for NPR or PBS or something like that yeah I think he um, was
1: part of uh he was supporting PBS back in uh back in the day I think
0: yeah it was PBS and so he kind of goes through this very brief and very moving argument for why art is valuable um I recommend checking that out too if you're kind of jumping back like you said on that that little nostalgia trip I have a ton of fond memories of Mr. Rogers so I appreciate you bringing that up All right, I'll uh, I'll hand it to Zach now. Um, Zach, what have you been up to lately in the the art world?
2: Oh, man, I don't really have a good story like Rich does, Uh, aside from the fact that... Yeah, that's a tough one to follow. Um, What I was listening to the last time we recorded a podcast was Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by the band The Welcome Wagon, and it was probably the night after when I had that album going on my Spotify. And I don't know if you guys have this feature or if you listen to Spotify, but on my app, when I finish an album, it'll just go to the album's radio feature. So it'll just go to a random assortment of artists that are related to somehow the music I was listening to. And this song called comes on called empty me out and i realized while i was listening to it that this was a christian song that had an amazing groove and it was like something that i had been searching for was finally coming through my ears that's awesome <laughs> it, yeah it um so her name is the artist's name is liz weiss and the album is called "There's a Light." It came out in 2015, and the way I would describe her sound, it's it's like bluesy urban gospel. And what I found so amazing, I you know, once I'm hearing that song, I went and listened to the whole album, and what's just so amazing about this work is that here is an artist that is creating art that is so in submission to her creator. Mm. Each song just espouses biblical truth in such a vulnerable and yet such a, uh, it's vulnerable and yet it makes you want to dance. (laughs) It's, Mm. Absolutely fantastic. What a great and combination. I know. And so I've been really blessed by her work lately, and I'm really excited to find out, because now I follow her on Instagram, that she is working on a new album, which I believe is coming out fall. That could be incorrect. Don't quote me on that. But um
1: yeah, there's a light by Liz Vice. Check it out. Cool. I'm writing it down as we speak.
0: Thanks, Zach. Yeah, when well, you said so vulnerable but makes you want to dance, the the picture I have in my head is kind of like a song that you might play at a wedding, for like the mother son or father daughter dance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: I feel like that's kind of a similar, uh, similar moment, mm-hmm. um, and similar combination of feelings. Right. So like, well, it's, a, it's joy, joy and sadness.
2: Uh huh. Well, and. Another aspect of it is that she, in specifically in Empty Me Out, you know the, the words are, empty me out, fill me with you. There's nothing I can give to you. Mm. And, but the way she sings it, she's just so joyful at the prospect of the Lord emptying her to only be refilled with
1: his Holy Spirit.
2: <laughs> and I just think that's amazing. <laughs>
1: That's so great. I'm always a big supporter of the idea that we as Christians should be, uh, we should experience more joy than anything else. I mean, there there needs to be time for uh, sorrow and contemplation and grave things, but more joy, I think, than anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think as we more fully understand God's work and Christ's place in our life, we come to see everything kind of through that perspective that can let us take something that would otherwise be sorrowful, but have, you know, a, a more complete picture of what's going on. And that gives us joy or let's us experience God's God's joy for us. Mm-hmm.
2: Let's listen. I was reading Rich, that article that you're talking about, about the anniversary of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. One, if there was a quote by him, uh, I don't know it verbatim, but it was something to do with, you know the normal life is not free of pain Hmm. but it is our pain and our hurt that is the grounds for for growth
1: that's beautiful
2: and i mean i've certainly been experiencing that in my life recently where you know you get put in circumstances that are confounding and are painful and yet God uses them to to nurture you into something to something more than you were before. And I've been so thankful to see that reflected in in this album, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to find it. That's cool, Zach. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So
0: what I've been up to lately is procrastinating, finishing that book that I was talking about last time um, <laughs> more than anything else. So If you guys didn't tune in last time, I was talking about Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life and antidote to chaos, Mm -hmm. um, which I kind of bought it on a whim because I like listening to him speak. I see a lot of his videos on YouTube. And so I was like, Hey, you know, if I'm a big fan of this guy, I'll probably like his book as well. Funny enough, my overall feeling so far is that I think I like him um, like lecturing or speaking more than I prefer his writing. Um, So I kind of, I haven't really hit a wall with the book. It just hasn't been that interesting to me. But to be fair to him, I also bought some Hemingway books and haven't read very much of those. So it's not like I'm, you know, just being picky and saying he's not good enough. I think maybe I'm just not in a a reading mood lately. Because if if it's quality I'm looking for, you know, it's it's hard to argue that Hemingway is going to not satisfy that. Um, That's
1: awesome.
0: But um, so funny enough, it's uh, the 19th of February is also my birthday and last night (laughs) thank you Um, last night I was debating whether or not I stay up until midnight Um, sometimes I do it's like a you know it's fun to kind of see that first minute of the of the birthday um, for no real reason you know like I don't do anything to celebrate it at that time but it's kind of fun to watch the clock change and I hopped on Vimeo um, which is kind of like it's not an alternative YouTube it's maybe it's a video platform, but kind of more focused on art um, and short videos, cinematography, that kind of stuff, versus like blogging or um, you know, like music videos and stuff that you might see on YouTube. And I found out that a video had just recently come out from a team that I didn't realize was going to keep putting anything else out. And so I wanted to talk about them because I think they're really cool. And, and the videos they did really, really moved me to become more interested in um, I don't want to just say cinematography because it's more to the even storytelling, kind of like the, the holistic picture of of visual video um, art. And I wish that we had Nate on because I know that he's got a lot of stuff to talk about and knows a lot about that. But I'll just go ahead and dive into it and maybe we can catch up on, on some of the more detailed aspects with him later. So the studio is called um, Five Nights or Five Nights Productions something like that, and then the series is The Kin Fables, K-I-N Fables. I found them years ago on on Vimeo, just kind of looking around. Maybe they're like a, a staff pick or like a featured video, and I didn't really understand it at first. I watched one or two of them, and I was like, this is, you know, kind of cool, but I was a little less mature in my art appreciation, and so, like, it didn't... I couldn't figure out what was going on, and so I kind of moved on and forgot about it, and then A while later, I started wondering, like, what was that one video that I saw that had such striking imagery that I never could figure out what was going on in it? And eventually, I found it and kind of got back into it and found out that there's a a trilogy. So it's kind of these three videos. Each one is very distinct in its feel, but they all have a very unifying approach to storytelling. It's very visual. Um, It's kind of dreamy, too. So as you're watching, you see, like, kind of slow-moving shots of someone walking through a forest or perhaps the people are dancing. Um, you know like on the edge of the ocean or something like that a lot of dramatic landscapes um, and you know clouds and overcast skies and there's some also there's also some really kind of interesting I I don't want to say pagan necessarily maybe Native American inspired dance aspects to it um, which are very very visually striking and beautiful and a little haunting in a way too so the combination of all those things like kind of the beauty and maybe the unsettling nature of some of the choreography really drew me into the series. You know, I hop on last night and I don't know exactly when the last video had been posted, but this, you know, this trilogy had, had been finished a couple of years back um, and I hadn't heard anything, not even like a Twitter post or something from this, this team since then. And I found that there's a new video out there doing a whole new trilogy, um, which I was really excited about. So I watched that last night as the first thing that I did on my birthday today. Um, So I'd recommend if you guys out there enjoy cinematography, if you enjoy movie making for the sake of movie making, I I don't think that there's any real like moral to the stories necessarily. To be honest, it doesn't seem like there's that much character development or anything like that. There's very, very little dialogue, at least in the first trilogy. It's it's really just beautiful. Yeah, pretty much, Um, which I really respect. Someone that just says, hey, I want to make this just because I feel like it should exist. I, I really appreciate that it that take to art. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'd recommend checking it out. It's the Kin Fables. Um, Five Nights Productions or Five Nights Studios is the name of the team that makes them. They're out of Canada, uh, Montreal, I think. And they have a new video up, and I believe there will be a new trilogy coming. I don't know how long it will take for the whole trilogy to come out, um, but there's, there's more coming, and that's always exciting. So that's that's kind of what I've been up to is shirking my duties as the, uh, the reader and watching some cool videos. Yeah, I I get a lot out of those. And I kind of want to start pursuing more of that type of stuff too, maybe get better at understanding and commenting on it. Because that way, when the next Star Wars movie comes out, I can provide better insight into that as well. We know that's all the goal. (laughs) That's it for me for my kind of update. Rich, you posted, um, or not you posted, but you wrote a blog post recently. And can you tell me a little bit, what inspired you to take this angle? So you said there's kind of a particular series, I think that you were watching, right? That kind of sparked this interest, but was this something you've been thinking about for a while or was it just that watching that show that kind of sparked it? I'm gonna also go ahead and kind of give a brief overview of the post um, for anyone that hasn't had a chance to read it.
1: Yeah, so um, the post is called The Importance of Age Diversity, Reaching Out to the True Silent Majority. So the claim I make is that Simply that we, in a lot of our popular media, you know, like across forums, uh, we're really only focusing on not only characters, but um, values and things that are of interest to people that are, you know, millennials or Generation Z, you know, people that are teens and 20s. Um, And because of that, I grabbed the historical political term silent majority and said that uh, the majority of people in America... Everyone not in that age bracket between fifteen and twenty nine is being forgotten, like not catered to. So, uh, my inspiration for this, like like you suggested, I've been thinking about this for a while now. Um, I can't I can't remember specifically what like triggered this in the first place, but I've been thinking about this for a couple months, and I've been kind of aware of the fact that, um, and like I say in the article, especially in the music world, this seems to be particularly true. Where, um, you know, we look at, you know, top 40, top 100 songs. And these this is music that, and I mean, I only have one experience. But in my experience, this is music that, you know, nobody I know that's over, you know, 30 or 35, you know, really listens to any of these artists that are consistently put up on the charts as the the face of American cultural experience. So... Um so I've been noticing that but the thing that really uh motivated me to start writing this blog post and I actually started writing this without um forefront particularly in mind without forefront at the forefront of my mind <laughs> um and the um but as I started writing this more I it it sort of became clear that this is something for that really does sit at the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. So then I started uh, tailoring it more toward uh, the forefront audience, but I think it fits very well. So uh, yeah, the thing that really like made me start writing was I've been watching, or I finished a while ago now, but I was watching the Netflix original show, the crown, which is um, if you haven't seen it, it's a Netflix original with two seasons about um, young queen Elizabeth of England, as she took the throne Um, starting in the 1940s and it goes through the first season goes through like the 40s and early 50s and the second season is the late 50s and early 60s and it is an absolutely fantastic show and um so i recommend the show to anybody i i think it's beautiful i think it's very well written it's extremely well acted but um I've learned a tremendous amount from the show. It's been a very educational experience, not only on the history of Queen Elizabeth and England and the socio-political world of that time, but also about like myself and what we value as Americans today in 2018 um juxtaposed to what the British valued in 1940 uh right after World War II. You know, a lot of the most really like stunning and thought provoking parts to me were conversations had between Elizabeth and Winston Churchill, who at the time in the show is very old and it's right before he's about to step down because of uh, frailty and some other things. But um, yeah, so The Crown has constant discussion, particularly in the first season, about whether or not it is more valuable for Elizabeth to keep the crown and the decisions of the royal house current and you know keeping the youth of England which is exploding you know in the baby boomer generation you know do they want to keep the post war youth happy and you know just do what the youth want or is it more important for her to do only what the old guard wants you know the uh the royals and the politicians from before the war um you know and and the english crown reaching all the way back to the roman empire um or i guess the third option is the easy medium does she want to make like uh an intelligent blend of the most important pieces of old and some of the new uh the flavors of the modern and that discussion happens constantly in the show and 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 it's really interesting too because in the 1950s you know if uh if you've taken art history or anything like that the 1950s is, is in, in at least in the past couple hundred years the 1950s is the biggest moment in the arts and cultural experience in the west of trying to decide like who are we and what do we value there's this huge upheaval of the change of the modern mind like you know we coming into the 1950s where. are um You know we very much value objectivity and symmetry and the same beauty that has been uh valued for centuries and By the end of the nineteen fifties we are we've entered into post modernity post modernity being the opposite of the modern things are not objective things are different depending on the- you know from viewer to viewer and values that have been accepted for as far back as we can remember are now only uh, concrete in their own time and maybe they're not concrete today. And so I think that uh, the show really made me think about those things greatly, as you can probably tell by me spiraling off out of topic. But, um, but I mean, so basically the idea, I, I think to kind of bring it back to the post, I think that it's very, I personally think it's very, very important for us as human beings, A, but B, definitely as human beings that are Christian and rooted in objective capital T truths. It's very important for us to entertain the opinions and tastes of people of all ages. And I think that will, that will keep us much more grounded more wise um, even as we are young, you know, I'm 25 years old, but I value that.
0: Yeah. Something that I wondered about too is kind of the, not the exact same time period, but kind of the idea that, you know, science now is telling us what's right and what we can measure is the only thing that we could know. And that kind of spiraled from a small kind of push in the Renaissance and kind of grew and grew and grew to the point where now people say like, you know, if you can't, if you can't put it on a scale, it just doesn't exist. And that's, you know, that's kind of painting in very broad strokes, but,
1: no, yeah, I was going to say – well, just to add to that, I find that tremendously interesting and I agree with you because in the scientific and mathematical worlds, it's very – we're still very much on, I think, the train of modern thinking. We're very much on the idea that like things that cannot be seen, you know, if we can't see it on a chart, it we can't believe it to be true. But in right. – but which is and science is certainly uh you know championing that however in the art world and when i say arts i don't necessarily mean like you know visual art and music i also mean you know things like the social sciences and um literature and things like that in the the social sciences arts world we have very much moved away from that and i i think now we're seeing that yeah, like a, in, you know, psychology and, and things like that, especially the further we move away from the science part, the prevailing understanding is like, you know, this is how, you know, experience A was for me, but it might be entirely different for you. So there's no way, mm-hmm. you know, I could tell you that, you know, whatever. You like, can explain I, I, your I,
0: experience to me, but you, but we both know that
1: our experience might be different. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, we and can I think agree also, on that. Yeah, and in education, uh for those of you who haven't paid attention to our personality, I'm a high school teacher and in in the education realm, I see this all the time where, you know, I might teach a lesson that's observed by a higher up and this lesson might be, you know, objectively great for 75% of the students present in the room. But in the social science world, I might be told by um you know, a higher up that while it might've been great for the 75, maybe it was a complete train wreck for 25% of the kids in the room, depending on their, um, the schema they're coming into the room with, you know, who, you know, all the things that they're bringing into the space, it might be an entirely different experience for them and therefore objectively bad. So I think that the idea of whether or not, you know, in education, I've seen that, a lesson is never good or bad. It's always a subjective experience. There is no objective good or bad it's It depends on because it's an interaction between two people. so I just think that that's an example that i you know see every single day of how we are kind of split in the world right now between these this pursuit of objective realities and this idea that there is no such thing as objectivity
0: mm-hmm. right yeah, and I know too so. You know, there's this, like I said, like the kind of scientific side of things. There's the idea that, oh, we didn't know anything before, but now that we've got science, we know it all. But the scientific picture of the world keeps changing, too. And I think that's something that we kind of lose sight of from um, from the arts perspective as well, is that the meaning can be different for people at the same time, but also looking back, the meaning changes with time. And that can kind of, you know, th- those filters as you look back and say, oh, well, in the 50s, we did this, but now that's the 60s, we do this differently because... The because is usually we know so much better than we did then, but then the 70s will come along and say, hey, you know things actually are even different than that. So I I think it's good to keep, like you said, and like you argue, it's good to keep that broad perspective that we probably knew something back then.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great truth that you brought up, and I wasn't even thinking of that at first. But I think that's, you know, if you look at how quickly popular opinion will, you know, change on a certain topic, like you said, like from decade to decade or whatever you know, I I think really backing up and having this broader view on like, you know, what has humanity experienced and understood for, you know, the vast majority of time, you know, and I and I think that we need to be more careful to, you know, double check before we completely jump onto like new ideas. And especially if it completely changes the whole way that we view a certain thing, like how in a lot of ways, things that have been very universally accepted about American history are now, uh, many of those things are being challenged by historians today. And, you know, if you if you took someone, you know, like my parents went to high school in the 70s, if you put them through the 2018, um, you know, state history standards, the history that students are being taught today is totally different than what they learned in the 70s. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that I think that it's it's safe. It's safer and more, I think, overall wise to blend you know, understandings over time to come to a more accurate truth. To get back to the post
0: a little bit, Rich, um, something that you said while you were talking through your thoughts on it and, and the reason that you were kind of inspired to write it is that there, there's kind of a risk to kind of jumping into this new view of the world. And I wanted to ask, so like, and I'm sure Zach has some questions too, but what do you think the younger generation misses out on by not viewing things through the lens of, particularly related to your post, through the lens of media aimed at older audiences, right? So if I'm always sitting here watching um, MTV, if that even exists anymore, and listening wow. to Skrillex, you know, how is that going to be detrimental to me? Or, or you know, what do you think that I would benefit from? Yeah by viewing something maybe older.
1: Yeah. um, I think that the most clear thing that one would be lacking by only looking at, you know, only consuming media created for the young people is you're missing the entire range of experience and concerns and knowledge and whatever of people that have gone through much more than us young people and also have, I think, maybe uh, concerns on their hearts with much more gravity than what we might be going through. So um, let me think of an example here. As far as, like, I mean, let's use music first. You will never hear me argue that there is no music targeted towards young people that has value because i absolutely do not believe that so don't don't mishear me or misread me at any point uh in blog post or here but you know i think that there are discussions that are being had in music that is not like radio top 40 music that are discussions that are never going to be had on top 40 radio like i think that right. you know it it's just a it's just a broader scope you know you're you're not going to hear a song on the radio about the challenges that someone is having about being, you know, a father of four, you know, like, you know, something like that. You're not going to hear that. Maybe someone
0: who is a grandparent and kind of struggling to reconcile, you know, family elements who are kind of pushing against each other for maybe political positions or something like that, you know, like kind of trying to keep a family whole, which I think is a very very Christian value as a 25 year old, you're probably not in that mindset, but if you can have had that kind of thought in your head by the time you get to 60 and kind of mold that over a little bit because of the art that you consume, you know, you're going to have a much better frame of mind and a much better kind of tool set to approach those problems. Um, But like, like you said, you'd miss out on that if, if you're kind of only listening to stuff aimed at your age group all the time. And so you miss out on that dimension. I really liked your answer, by the way, earlier that you miss out on, on kind of that experiential knowledge and wisdom that you get after living for longer than 25 years.
1: Yeah. And I think my favorite examples of this are, I'm a big fan of both uh, Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. And I've been listening to them since I was a kid because they're my dad's favorite musical artist. So I've just been hearing them since I was a kid. And I think that a lot of Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel songs that were written by those singer songwriters during, you know, the time when they were in their late twenties or their thirties or something like that. I feel like I have been prepared for like decisions and experiences that have come in my life just in the past couple of years by listening to the musical artists that are older than me, talk about, you know, what they were feeling and how they dealt with these things as they went through them. You know, and you look at an artist like Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen or, you know, anyone from that era who has a library of music uh, ranging from the time when they were 20 to now when they're, you know, 50, 60 or more. And you can see, you know, if you just go on Spotify and scroll through the albums chronologically, you can hear the sound of the music change. You can hear the the types of lyrics that they're writing change. You know, the things that they value and the experiences that they're writing about change dramatically. I mean, um, some of, you know, Bruce Springsteen's early albums are all about teenage recklessness. And his late albums, which have been coming out in the past five years or so, you know, five to 10 years, they're about... Political upheaval and divorce and having uh children that are adults that you don't see you know uh John Denver, the folk singer, has a song that he wrote in the nineties about the experience of rarely seeing his wife and children while he's constantly on tour and that that that's a very it's a very deep and raw and meaningful uh, song, you know, to listen to, and it has a lot to teach us young people about the experience that experiences that we may not have had yet, and experiences that, you know, I am decades away from even possibly having, you know, adult children. So we just have a lot to learn from those things.
2: Mm-hmm. I would also add that having parents that listen to music by musicians that are espousing wisdom that is so above what you can say as like a 10 year old but you grow up listening to them anyways it's it's kind of like what you were saying rich it almost you almost like grow in to the wisdom as you grow older and as you live with this with this art with this music and live with these
1: experiences um yes I think that's a really good way to say what I was trying to say. <laughs> I think that um <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right that like there are songs that I've listened to. I think a fantastic example, if you look up you look up the song It Was a Very Good Year by Frank Sinatra. He talks about these very good years throughout his life as he gets older and older. And I and when I first heard that song, I was a teenager and He sings about when I was 17 and I understood that aspect, but then he, you know, sings about when I was 21 and et cetera, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. when I turned 21, I listened to that song again and I understood where he was coming from at that point. So I think that we really can grow into music and literature and movies that are being made by older people, you know, and the content is their experience. I think that's just very useful for us.
2: So, Rich, question that came up for me when I was reading your post was: Do do you think that this issue is something that is generational and is not new to millennial culture, or is there something about our specific generation's media constructs that have kind of exacerbated the issue?
1: That's a really good question. And before I answer, I want to mention that I'm no authority on this, but I'll I'll speak with the knowledge that I have. So I think that there have probably been elements of this through all time. I think that young people have always felt like their truth was the only truth and that old people were always uh, stuffy and they didn't understand us and we had to you know, break away from their hold and, you know, make our own future. I think that's always been true, you know, especially, you know, at the very least back into like the 20th century, I think that we, you know, when rock and roll came out and et cetera, you know, we, uh, it was focused very much on youth culture. However, I think that if we look back farther than maybe the 20th century, uh, so yes, I think that our media constructs, in the modern age, the postmodern age, have greatly exacerbated this situation. Uh, because, as, as I mentioned in the blog post, like very briefly, I think that in traditional cultures, if, if we go to traditional cultures, like I've been, I've had the opportunity to visit um, tribal cultures, both in the United States and in South America. And in traditional cultures, there's very little value for the opinions of the young. The more age that you have, the more wisdom is assumed that you have. And the older people are the people that make decisions for communities. Uh, and I think that that's the way that humanity has has typically run, you know, through most of time. You know, I think that, you know, it, if we look at like Eastern culture and traditional Western culture, the people who were the decision makers and who were, you know, who had the money to, 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 you know, run cultural centers and, and fund, you know, things like painting and music and stuff like that were people that were much older and more experienced and had tastes with more gravitas, I think. And I think today the things that have changed that is like I say, like I said in the blog post as well, I think that our turn away from religion and towards secularism, and our serious increase in the amount that we can communicate and consume uh, from, like the internet and you know various other communication devices, I think both of these things combined have made us lose value for all that which people who are older than us can share. I think that we very much now live in the moment there's no eternity there's nothing that my grandma can show me because everything that my grandma can show me is outdated you know back when my grandma was a kid we were racist and you know sexist and blah blah blah. so whatever my grandma can tell me now that's all i don't need that you know i me and my generation we understand the ways of the world now you know and i think that that's how we look at things i mean I shudder to recommend this to you, but if you want to see this, just go on Buzzfeed and like scroll through, (laughs) you know, but, um, but basically I think that the, I just want to say that you should never go on Buzzfeed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, please don't. But I mean, but I mean, not only, not only does something like Buzzfeed um, show us that we don't really value what, you know, our parents care about. We actually blatantly insult those things now in our popular culture you know, like in a lot of ways. So yeah, so I I think that I think that the youth have always had a feeling that we know better. And so I, I don't think that's anything new. But I do think that the older people catering to the youth is new. And I think that the internet has been a huge tool in making that change. And like I I talked about, uh, you know, music numbers in the blog post, Um, you know, Spotify is used significantly more by people ages 13 through 29. And I think that that, you know, Spotify being the number one medium through which people consume music today, obviously, you know, the businesses are going to cater their decisions and their tastes and whatever to what people ages 13 to 29 want. So I think that the internet and the prevalence of, and the ease with which we can con- both consume and create has made our culture turn very strongly towards the youth m- more so than it ever has been before.
0: Right. So like as technology kind of becomes more and more important and young people are more able or better able maybe to adapt to new technology it becomes harder and harder for previous generations to kind of maintain relevance. And to go back to what you're saying, like, oh, grandma was racist. It's not that we're kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe we should be a little bit racist out of respect for our elders. It's that that was one. (laughs) No, no, no. no. No, I know you didn't say that, but like racism is definitely bad. And we can look back and criticize that without any kind of hesitation, but we shouldn't think that everything that happened in those previous years was completely enveloped by every single mistake that we can think of that they made back then. There were definitely valuable perspectives and excellent art was made. People had tough decisions that when they're making them, they can provide us wisdom for decisions that we might have to make. Um, So so all I'm trying to say is the value that can be provided shouldn't be discounted by the fact that there were errors or, you know, negative aspects of of the past and so those negative aspects shouldn't stop us from valuing the past
1: right we can't we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. and the i think that you know to tie it again to my reference in the post uh in the crown she had elizabeth has to make that decision all the time like you know there are things that she very much disagrees with that the traditional you know maybe the church or the crown or parliament or whatever has always done and she's saying, you know, it's the 20th century now, we can't do it that way anymore. But instead of just right. turning away from these older things, we have to blend the good parts of the past and the good parts of the present into wisdom, I think.
2: Mhm. But mm-hmm. well, I think it's I know we're running short on time here, but I think it's really interesting to see the the church's attempt to as you I, I like the way you put it, right? To to blend those two. Cause and Josh, you used this word relevant. <laughs> I don't know if you there was like a year ago there was this great video put out about this band three people, you know, like about oh, our age and they're talking to these two uh record record Christian record label CEOs. And uh, talking about like all these basically making fun of the stereotypes of Christian music making. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the jokes they make is that these two CEOs are like, and we're going to make you guys hashtag relevant. <laughs> and right. Because your post Rich, really talks about, you know, like what the you know, what the role of of, say, a millennial is. In learning from generations of the past, um, but something it could be interesting to talk about in the future too is like how older generations communicate with a younger generation that kind of thinks they know all they need to know.
1: Yeah, the yep. the other place if you bring up if you're bringing up the church, I think the other place where this is very clearly seen is in the. There's been a very popular return uh, in America in the past 10 years or so to more traditional style churches. I mean, I grew up in an evangelical contemporary church, and I currently go to a very liturgical high church Anglican church. And I, I know a great many people who grew up in very contemporary, you know, millennial catering Churches which had like no connection other than the scriptures themselves to the traditions of the past. And, you know, I I can name countless people that I know of that are Christians that have sort of switched back to uh, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran backgrounds, just because we are starting to really miss and crave that connection to things that are older and wiser than the moment. You know, right?
0: Yeah, I I think of a, a Newsboys concert that I went to um, at Kingdom Bound at Darien Lake back in the day. Um, back when it was still Six Flags Darien Lake, I believe. Um, <laughs> and the lead singer of Newsboys, Peter Furler, was up on stage, and they just finished a song. Um, and he took a moment to kind of talk about some things and state some of their beliefs, basically. And the thing that he said that stuck with me more than anything else of that concert or the whole weekend was. We don't need to make Jesus cool. You know, we need to understand who Jesus is as he is and reconcile ourselves to him. Um, And I think that's kind of at at the core of what we're saying here. And what you said, Rich, is that, you know, there are things that maybe we need to step back and appreciate and value, whether they are directly Christian or Christ himself or just the wisdom of of previous generations.
1: Right. And, you know, if we're honest, if we are honest with ourselves, Jesus is pretty darn cool as he is. So, (laughs) you know, all you have to do is, yeah, I think that better understand who he is to realize that he's cool. Right. Right. And I think that the, I think that any of us who are being sincere, I would challenge any person, even if they are 13 or whatever, I would challenge any person that if you are truly being sincere and you open yourself up to, you know, media beyond stuff that is targeted to teens and 20-somethings, you will enjoy it and you will learn a great deal from it. You know, I don't think that there's any sort of big conspiracy or anything crazy like that, but I think that the, you know, corporations that are putting forth, you know, music and movies and whatever today for purely financial reasons are ignoring those groups. And I think that that's a shame. And I think that we as consumers have the power to, you know, have our voice heard and, you know, kind of expand our breadth of what we consume on Spotify and at the movies and things like that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think from a four point perspective, just to tie it all up, we kind of always recommend branching out and looking for art that you haven't experienced trying to find God's work and trying to find God in, in the next, um, not just the next big thing, but in something that you haven't experienced before. Specifically in art. Yeah.
1: yeah. For sure. Don't listen. And I am guilty of this. I 100% am guilty of this. Don't find yourself listening to the same three albums that you like really love that you've been listening to since 2012. Because, like, I, I, I <laughs> whenever I get in the car, whenever I get in the car, I put on the December's The King is Dead. Love yes. the album. But I've been listening to it. I've been listening to it all the time since 2011 and you know, it's a great album. Awesome. I'm not going to put it on a shelf for it to get dusty, but you know, it's time for me to kind of listen to some other stuff. So maybe I'll give Zach a call and get a list of awesome uh, music <laughs> recommendations.
2: Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm pretty mad about that myself, but you know what I think, you know what I think is why we do that is because, you know, aside from the fact that it's great music that we love and it means a lot to us, but like we kind of want to go back to like oh, where yeah. we were when we first formed a bond with that music. <laughs> right. But Zach, yeah, we're I too young for we that. Need to, I, I we know. need to push. Yeah, we need to push past
0: our idea of nostalgia to get back to when things not not to not to get back to when things were good because I think that's kind of like a, a false dichotomy of. It was always better yesterday. Mm -hmm. We need to push through our ideas of nostalgia to get back to valuing things from the past, Um, instead of just saying, "I like that feeling about thinking about the past." Mm -hmm. All right, guys, I think we should cut it off here. Um, It's been a really good episode. I think we've taken the discussion a lot of really good places. Um, So thank you everybody for joining us, and uh, I hope we didn't keep you too long. We could definitely go go longer. Um, I think there's (laughs) a lot of good topics here, and so I'd recommend. You know, commenting on the post or reaching out to us if you have any questions or if yeah, that if you want to go that... longer,
1: if you want to go longer, I'll get in a nice uh, comment conversation with you on the blog forever. So
0: <laughs> yeah, there's always more to there's always more to say. So thank you so much for joining us, Rich and Zach. Thanks so much, guys. Um, Rich, you. really appreciate the post, and uh, we look forward to talking to you guys um, again next time. Signing off. This is Fourfront Three Hundred and Sixty. And we hope that you have a blessed week.